Go ahead and please open your Bibles to Matthew 27, page 1419 in the church Bibles here. Matthew 27, we're continuing our study through this gospel today by looking at verses 6 through 10. This is the second part of a two-part series titled, The Tragedy of All Tragedies. Last week we saw verses 1 through 5, where uh, we looked at the record of Jesus being handed over uh, to Pilate, and um, also how Judas uh, tried to set things right, and when all failed, he went and hung himself. And as we specifically focused on verses 3 through 5, on Judas is uh, a tragic end, uh, we looked at two severe warnings uh, these verses taught us. Warning number one was that we can appear close to Jesus, appear to be close to Jesus, but end up being far from him for all eternity. Judas was as close as anyone could get to in terms of uh, in his association with Jesus. Yet, in the end, he ended up being far away from him for all eternity. And the only way for you and I to avoid such a tragedy we saw was to make sure we are genuinely united with Jesus by faith and not just superficially attached to him. And warning number two we saw was that it was the love of money that led to the betrayal of the Holy Son of God. When you boil it all down, one of the greatest evil acts next to the crucifixion, next to the betrayal, led to the crucifixion, was because of a love for money. That idle money that controlled Judas's heart not only destroyed his soul, but has destroyed many a soul before Judas and since then. And the only way to avoid money from controlling us is to take the Bible's repeated warnings about the dangers of loving money and for money to come between Jesus and us. But that's easier said than done. How can we have that kind of a mindset? The only way to have that is to treasure Jesus more than anything else. That's the only way. That's why we must continually plead with God to help us to see Jesus is that pearl of great price that nobody, nothing can come between Him and us. The more we treasure Jesus, the more our eyes automatically turn away from looking at worthless things, including that idol called money. So in a nutshell, that's what we saw last week. And today we're going to look at the second part, verses 6 through 10. Here's where we're going to see how the money that Judas returned was used by the chief priests and uh, the elders. And as we look at verses 6 through 10, this is the simple and comforting truth that I want us to see. God uses even the evil acts of people to accomplish His saving work. God uses even the evil acts of people to accomplish His saving work. I believe if we embrace this truth, it will tremendously impact our present lives. It will help us when evil comes upon us, especially when people keep on attacking us, it will protect us in these ways. Number one, it will protect us from getting discouraged and running into despair. Number two, it will protect us from retaliating against people. And number three, it will protect us from getting upset with God. 
God, how can you allow this to happen in my life? Because we tend to doubt God's character when things don't go well. So that's what this passage is about in terms of its application. God uses even the evil acts of people to accomplish His saving work. When we embrace that wholeheartedly, it has tremendous practical day-to-day implications. But understand this, if you want to live the Christian life, you will face suffering. You will face rejection. When we understand that, not just in the head sense, but in the heart sense, we won't be so surprised when we go through suffering. We won't retaliate, we won't respond in the way we often respond, because the words just, the truths just don't go in deeply. That's why God reminds us again and again and again, expect suffering. Expect, let me rephrase it, expect unjust suffering. Expect it. Respond to it rightly by embracing this truth. God uses. Evil doesn't catch God by surprise. In fact, evil is factored into his overall plan. But through that, he's going to accomplish a wonderful work in our lives. So let's pray and ask the Lord to change us from the inside out as we look at these uh, important uh, verses. Father, we just come before you and once again acknowledge our need uh, for you. Um, and, and, And I pray that as you said, Your word that goes out will accomplish its purposes. Uh, So I pray for your strength uh, uh, to be imparted to me, to communicate these truths to all of us. Uh, uh, How blessed is the one whose strength is in you. I need you so that I would not, I would not uh, uh, mess up today. Uh, Please help me. May your power flow through my weaknesses, which are many, physical and uh, mental and uh, spiritual. I pray that uh, you will speak to all of our hearts so that uh, we would be strengthened uh, to, uh, to know that you are in control of even the greatest evil act that occurred. And any evil that comes upon us too, it is under your sovereign control and um, you are calling us to respond in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the first uh, 10 verses. Let me read the text and then we'll look at that. I'm going to read from verse 1 on for the sake of the context here. Early in the morning, Matthew 27 verse 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Verse 6. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on them by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. 
A few years ago I preached a series of 12 sermons on the attributes of God. One of which was the sovereignty of God. Later those uh, uh, sermons, uh, those attributes were written in the form of blog posts. And this is what I wrote. I know it's kind of awkward. I'm quoting myself. but <laughs> it, it, It's pathetic. I couldn't come up with any other way of introducing the subject. But <laughs> bear with me. This is what I wrote in the introductory section of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. That is, he is in complete control over all the events of life, including reasons known to himself, those acts that are in defiance of his revealed will as found in scripture. God is sovereign. He is in complete control over all the events of life, including reasons known to himself, those acts that are in defiance of his revealed will as found in scriptures. In other words, even the evil acts of human beings, including the devil himself, are under the sovereign control of God who uses them to accomplish his good purposes. And to substantiate this from the scriptures, I quoted many verses in that, but for today's purpose, I'm just going to quote only two. Two that remind us that biblical writers understood this truth and that's why they could persevere despite much evil done against them. Number one example is Joseph in the Old Testament. If an evil was done that was so horrific in the sense of close family members, it was Joseph. His own brothers sold him. And when you read Genesis 39, I think it's 39 or 37, uh, his brothers, as they put him in the pit, they're sitting and having lunch. He's hearing they're planning to sell him. That was the cold-hearted action that these people did. But then, when he's in power, this is what he said to his brothers. The last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50 verse 20 says this, You intended to harm me. Joseph is not saying, you know, hey, you didn't do any evil. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This was the physical deliverance. But you see, God used even those evil acts to accomplish His saving purposes, specifically in bringing the nation out so that they would not be in famine, and then He would bring them out of Egypt later on. Jeremiah, upon seeing the destruction of Jerusalem, said this. We read this uh, a few weeks ago on the anniversary Sunday when I preached through Lamentations 3. It says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Verse 37. And then he says in verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Let me repeat verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Meaning, the devil is not sovereign. God and God alone is. The same theme is stressed even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. He works out everything. The everything includes good and bad. That's sovereignty in a nutshell. God working out everything. And yet, 
fulfills his sovereign and glorious saving purposes. That is why we must be careful in trying to defend God's character when evil happens by making statements like God did not have anything to do with this. That's a blatant denial of the sovereignty of God. As if somehow the devil slipped in and ran one past God. We don't need to make God appear good to people by compromising scriptures. God is never the author of evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. James 1.13 says, God is not the author of sin. But that does not mean God didn't have anything to do with it. Meaning, God still allowed evil to function and He will yet bring about His purposes, His glorious ultimate saving purposes to fulfillment even through that evil act. The devil is not sovereign. Not for one second. Read the book of Job. Devil could still operate only under the boundaries God set. The devil ultimately in one sense is God's servant to accomplish his purposes. And that truth here is clearly evident in Matthew 27 verses 6 through 10. That God accomplishes his glorious saving purposes even through the evil acts of people. Just as God was in control over the most horrific and evil act that was ever done in human history, the betrayal and the crucifixion of the Holy Son of God and still brought about the greatest good, the salvation of our souls. He is still in charge of the evil things that happen to you and me. And through through those evil things, He is still working to bring that ultimate good for us. And what's the ultimate good for us? Our glorification. The end of our salvation. When we will be fully made like Jesus. He wants us to comfort us through hard times. Don't get discouraged when evil happens to you. Just as my son endured because he embraced my sovereign control over all affairs, you also pattern your life. He is your example. Follow him. Follow in his footsteps of suffering, in his footsteps of serving and trust me to accomplish that glorification in you. I started the good work. I will complete it. Don't let all these experiences pull you down. Don't fall into despair. Don't retaliate. And don't ever fall into doubting God's good character. That's what that's what I believe these verses are designed to communicate to us. Verse 5 ended with Judas returning the 30 pieces of silver and in complete despair going out and hanging himself perhaps a final and desperate act of trying to make restitution. Tragic end for sure. Let's pick up the story from Verse 6 to see what happens next. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Suddenly, these people are concerned about keeping God's law. Do you see that? You can't do this. What specific law were they referring to that prohibited them from using this money they call as blood money, meaning money earned? at the cost of the wrongful death of Jesus. They themselves describe that as blood money. It's interesting, isn't it? 
it's hard to be different of what old testament law that they're thinking about but most likely it's deuteronomy 23:18 where god commanded his people not to bring into the temple money earned by wrong means this is what deuteronomy 23:18 says you must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or of a male prostitute into the house of the lord your god to pay any vow because the lord your god detests them both the general principle is don't bring an offering that's earned through wrong means that's the idea now whether the leaders had this passage in mind or not one thing is clear by refusing to put this money into the temple treasury to use it for temple purposes they acknowledge this money was earned in a wrong way and yet in their hypocrisy they don't stop from continuing with murdering jesus even though they could have gone to pilate and said we made a mistake because later in the next section we'll see pilate is desperately trying to release jesus they still don't see it they still are bent on killing him so you see it is easy to outwardly want to keep the law again comes down to the heart isn't it there's a vast difference i said last week about appearing to be godly and genuinely being godly it's a heart issue till the very end no one doubted judas that's how smart he was but that's how he's deceived himself also we may think we can fool others we cannot fool god a lie repeatedly told becomes the truth so if we keep telling a lie to ourselves we might think this is the christian way to live when our thoughts our actions are really contrary to the scriptures and when there is a cost we are unwilling to pay the cost at the root there's something else that's at the center of our hearts our own prominence money lust whatever it might be unless that is smashed and dethroned we're not believers we're fooling ourselves so these people notice outwardly they're trying to keep the law in fact other gospels say they would not even enter the praetorium where he was with pilate because they didn't want to defile themselves because it was the sabbath it was a passover time no wonder jesus said you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside inside full of dead men's bones stinking carcasses on the inside that's how a lot of the hearts are of people attending church day in and day out speak careful jesus told you blind guides you strain out a gnat a small fly but swallow a camel you're more concerned about that 30 pieces of silver but you're not concerned about killing me they wouldn't use the betrayal money because it was used for betraying an innocent man but that didn't stop them from continuing to murder that innocent man notice what these hypocrites these blind guides did with that money verses 7 and 8 so they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners that is why it has been called the field of blood to this day so they considered judas's money unclean so what do they do they use it to buy a graveyard an unclean place and for whom foreigners whom the jews considered as unclean people unclean money used to buy an unclean place for an unclean people but but even in this act 
This is my speculation here, so think with me. Even this act, I think Matthew wants us to see Jesus' betrayal too was used to benefit others, the Gentiles. It's a picture to teach us God's love for the Gentiles. See, throughout Matthew, throughout this gospel, Matthew has been showing Jesus' love for the Gentiles. Now, even the money that was used to betray Jesus ended up benefiting Gentiles. Like I said, this is my thinking. I see every aspect of Jesus' life was used to bless others. And the field that was originally called as a potter's field because they bought it from a potter from that day on became to be known as the field of blood. Meaning a field that was purchased with money earned from shedding the innocent blood of the innocent Lamb of God. And Matthew in his typical fashion ends with the tenth and final reference to a particular event that related to Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament passage. We've been seeing in Matthew throughout, theologians call this as a fulfillment formula. You would see a lot of times, and this is the last time, tenth and last time, where you see, look at that in verse 9, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. So Matthew connects certain events in Jesus' life to a fulfillment of the Old Testament, some Old Testament prophecies. Why? Keep in mind, Matthew wrote this gospel mainly to reach to the Jews. To convince the Jews that this Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That is why he references so many Old Testament passages. Mark as an example does not do that because Mark's intended audience was Gentiles. Writing the audience in Rome primarily. So Matthew here has Jewish people in mind. So he quotes and this is the last time he quotes. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now let me at the outset tell you, this is a challenging passage. Challenging passage. In what way? Matthew says, the leader's acts fulfill the words of Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah 18, verses 2 through 6, we read about Jeremiah visiting a potter. And in Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 15, we read about the Lord commanding Jeremiah to buy a field near Jerusalem, even though Babylon was going to come and destroy the nation. The reason why God commanded Jeremiah to do that is, it was like a sign to the people, I'm going to bring you back from exile. And selling and buying and signing contracts is going to resume. It was a sign of hope. But Matthew could not have had that in mind because this is a passage that deals with the betrayal of the Messiah. Jeremiah 19 verses 1 through 15 may fit the context better. So I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 19. We're going to study a couple of Old Testament passages together to understand this. Uh, Jeremiah 19 verses 1 through 15, let me summarize what these verses uh, teach and then we can read the verses together. In these verses we find the Lord commanding Jeremiah to first buy a clay jar from a potter. God then commands him to take that jar and take some leaders to this place called Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Verse 6 tells us, 
The valley of Ben-Hinnom was also called as Topheth or the valley of slaughter. And once they reached there, Jeremiah's job was to warn the nation, judgment is coming if you don't repent. And then smash that jar as a vivid illustration of this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem and Judah if you continue in rebellion. That's the gist of this passage. Follow with me as I read Jeremiah 19 beginning in verse 1. This is what Yahweh says, Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. See the picture here. Blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention nor did it enter my mind. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. So three names you have there referring to the same place. In this place, verse 7, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. We read in Lamentations 4, compassionate women eating their children. That came to pass then. But also AD 70, before Rome destroyed Jerusalem, they put up a siege. Same thing that the people did at that time when they were starving. It was a replica because people did not repent. Then notice verse 10. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as the potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. This is what I will do to this place and to those who live here declares Yahweh. I will make this city like Topheth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled like this place, Topheth. All the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to all the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Notice verse 11 how clearly God says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. And then verses 14 and 15. Jeremiah then returned from Topheth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounce against them because they were stiff-necked and they would not listen to my words. In other words, that place Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom or the valley of slaughter 
would be a burial ground as a sign of God's judgment. By the way, historians tell us the traditional site of the potter's field that Matthew describes here is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom or valley of slaughter. So Matthew, as he saw what the leaders did, he's seeing it. He saw what the leaders did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was led to view this passage of Jeremiah as a fulfilled prophecy in this sense. Just as God buried the wicked people who rejected him in Jeremiah's day, he would also bury those who rejected his son, the Messiah he had sent to the nation. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70, 40 years later, when Rome came and completely destroyed Jerusalem, raised it to the ground, including the temple and the dead were buried. So in that sense, the Jeremiah passage functioned as a fulfilled prophecy. But there's a small problem. Jeremiah, nowhere in his writings, mentions anything about the 30 pieces of silver. He talks about a potter, field, all of that. But no 30 pieces. On the other hand, there's another Old Testament prophet by the name of Zechariah. He mentions the potter and 30 pieces of silver. You're in the book of Jeremiah. Go a few books forward to Zechariah page 1362 in the church Bibles here. Zechariah chapter 11 please. Zechariah chapter 11 page 1362. This is the picture again. God's people were sent to exile. This is Jeremiah warned. They didn't listen. Babylon came, destroyed. People are now in exile. In exile, these people are still rebelling against God. They have not repented. They are still in rebellion. So, God appointed Zechariah, his man, the prophet, to shepherd the people while they were in exile. And Zechariah obeyed God's call. That's the context. Let's pick it up from verse 7. So, I shepherd the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union and I shepherded the flock. But as he shepherded them, he was facing rejection upon rejection, repeatedly. So, Jeremiah was tired. He refused to continue shepherding them. Look at verses 8 and 9. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. That's reference to false leaders. The flock detested me. Why? Because they wanted people who can speak things that the reaching ears wanted. When Zechariah removed them, they detested him even more. And I grew weary of them. Verse 9, and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. So Zechariah asked them to pay. Hey, you want to pay something? Pay what you think is fair? If not, that's okay too. Look at the first part of verse 12. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. He was fed up with the people. But instead of repenting, the people paid Zechariah 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave according to Exodus, to get rid of him. Look at the last part of verse 12. Last part of verse 12. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, the price of God's prophet to get rid of him was the price of a slave. But in reality, by rejecting Zechariah, they were rejecting Yahweh himself. That's what they felt. God, here's the price. 
get away from us stop confronting us with the holy words of the holy one isaiah 30 that's what speak to us smooth things prophesy illusions that's what these people are telling zechariah years later the same rejection of god by the nation reached its climax in the messiah's day led by the corrupter corrupt leaders entire leadership except a few were corrupt the nation not only rejected the messiah but went to the point of killing him by paying judas 30 pieces of silver the same amount their forefathers paid as they rejected yahweh by rejecting his prophet in other words both yahweh and his son were priced at the same value 30 pieces of silver the price of the price of an ordinary slave that's how low jesus was viewed let me pause here for a moment if you think and i think how could people treat me this way after i've done so much pause for a moment that's how we treated him we were there if we were there we would have not done anything different this was the price of the messiah who came who created us who came to shed his blood for us was valued at so next time be humble someone insults you don't think you're so great that no one can offend you i direct that to myself also so that's zechariah's prophecy but there's a small problem here zechariah does not mention a field even though he mentions 30 pieces of silver You see the problem now. See the problem. One has one, the other has the other. Jeremiah mentions everything except 30 pieces. In fact, the field that he buys was 17 shekels of silver, not 30 pieces. But if you combine both the prophecies, you see the fulfillment here. And that's exactly what Matthew does. In your Bibles, if you have a footnote, it would have Matthew and Zechariah, I mean, uh, Jeremiah and Zechariah's prophecies. he's seeing a combination but why does he say only jeremiah's prophecies are fulfilled this is how jeremiah and isaiah were more prominent than other prophets there are times when multiple prophecies are combined the prominent prophet's name is included this is done in other sections of the bible too you're in zechariah move a little forward you cross matthew come to mark chapter 1 Mark chapter 1 page 1424 I want you to see this connection here Mark chapter 1 verses 2 to 3 This is Mark introducing the gospel he is introducing his gospel by introducing John the Baptist Notice what he says in verse 1 The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the son of God as it is written Look at verse 2 as it is written in by whom as it is written in isaiah the prophet i will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way if you see a footnote you will see a footnote referencing malachi chapter 3 verse 1 because malachi 3:1 predicts a messenger coming before the messiah that's john the baptist or john the baptizer and then look at verse 3 where mark records a second prophecy a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord make straight paths for him that's isaiah 40 verse 3 about the messenger he would call the nation john the baptist calling the nation 
from wilderness. He prepared to receive the Messiah. How? By turning from your sin and testifying through the waters of baptism. Two prophecies, Malachi and Isaiah, but only Isaiah is stated. It's usually the more prominent prophecies. But there's also another reason. Those days, they would have scriptures in scrolls, like a paper rolled up. Sometimes you would have one prophet, one major prophet like Jeremiah, and along with that would be a few minor prophets. It's very likely that the scroll of Jeremiah also had Zechariah's prophecy. So it was combined, but it would come under the heading of the major prophet. So there's no textual problems here. It's just that's the way the New Testament writers thought. So it's two prophecies. But again, the reason for me to take you through this, you might think it's like, well, that doesn't have a whole lot of relevance. It does. The reason is this. Even this evil act of how they used the money does not catch God by surprise. A wise God even predicted this. Now these leaders did not do this to fulfill prophecy. By no means. They did it. But God shows even the evil of people is under my control. Lesson for us is simple again. The evil plans of people cannot thwart God's purposes in bringing his children to glory. Instead, he actually uses those evil actions to make us become more like Christ, which is his goal anyway. Right? He uses that to humble us, to teach us. The rejections we face may catch us by surprise, but not our God. And we understand that. It's comforting for us. It's comforting because it will protect us from falling into discouragement, number one. Number two, it will protect us from retaliating. And number three, it will protect us from having a wrong view of God. How could you let this happen to me, Lord? I've been so faithful. Are we? Can any living man complain when being punished for his sins? Joseph in the Old Testament understood this principle. Let's work through, we're going to work through three passages before we close in terms of how the New Testament writer, how the scriptures tell us about both in the Old and in the New. People understood this concept and that's why they could persevere. Number one example is Joseph. Even though his brothers did a great evil against him, they sold him, but he still did not retaliate against them because he had learned to see a sovereign hand of God overseeing all events. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, page 67. Genesis 45. This is about 20 years after Joseph's brothers had sold him. They're, they're under the impression Joseph is dead or he's gone. And now they were in Joseph's presence even though they didn't know who he really was. All they knew was they stood before the Prime Minister of Egypt because that was Joseph's position by then. The number two in Egypt. The second most powerful man in that place. Egypt was a superpower at that time. Keep that in the back of your mind. And this is when Joseph revealed to them who he really was. 
Let's pick up the story from verse 3 of Genesis 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Natural response. They were terrified. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. He's not denying their sin. Okay? Embracing God's sovereignty does not mean we just tell people you didn't sin. No, you did sin. And now, look at his response. Pay close attention please. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. He is comforting them. Did you see that here? He's going that side of the room and taking sides with them, putting an armor on their shoulders. That's compassion. Now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 6, For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here even though it was you, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Three times, notice, he says, God sent me. Verse 5, God sent me. Verse 7, God sent me. Verse 8, different way, not you who sent me here, but God. So you see, he could have easily resorted to show his power by lording it over them. He did not use physical force. In other words, he's not a bully here. Sometimes we want to get our way by being a bully. Exactly opposite of what Jesus did. And then we cry out, Jesus, hear my prayers. Why should he hear our prayers? Until we humble ourselves and say, no, forgive me for wanting to lash out. If we don't lash out outwardly, we lash out inwardly a thousand times. The Holy Spirit sees that, feels that, grieves at that. Joseph didn't bully them into submission. He could forgive them. How could he do that? Simple because he learned over the years this one thing. To see the sovereign hand of God was above his brothers, controlling all the events in the background and even using their sin for a greater purpose, a greater good, the saving of physical lives. He could see that. And that's not the only time he did that. Down to the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. We'll pick it up again from verse 18. Jacob is dead. And the brothers now again panic. Hey, maybe Joseph forgive us because of dad's presence. Now dad is gone. Maybe he'll unleash his power and retaliate. Look at verse 18. So they come to him and say, Brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. You see, they didn't fully believe Joseph's forgiveness. They thought he forgave them only for the father's sake. But notice how wrong they were. Verse 19 on. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Don't gloss over that phrase. Am I in the place of God? What does he mean by that? This is what he means. I'm not God to take revenge on you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I don't want to dare take something from him that will bring him glory on that day. 
I don't want to rob him of his glory by taking vengeance into my own hands. See, when we and I, you and I take vengeance, we are doing two things that are wrong. One, we are behaving towards the other person in a wrong way. But second and most importantly, we are robbing God of his glory. God is very particular about his glory. He doesn't retaliate. But notice, he doesn't stop with it. I'm not going to retaliate, but I'm going to keep my distance. No. No. Notice the good he wants to do. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Again he says that. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. No wonder Joseph, when you read, you feel like, you know, it's almost like Jesus incarnate there. Almost. But we know he's a fallen human being. See that, right? Spoke kindly to them. I'll provide for you. That's actively, I will continue to do good for you. I'm not going to pull back and I'm not going to grudgingly do it. You worthless people, you don't deserve everything. No, he doesn't do that. I will do it because I see God orchestrating all these things. Folks, you cannot have this kind of attitude unless you learn to see the hand of a wise, sovereign and loving God who can and who does use the evil of others, the evil that he inflicted upon us to still accomplish his purposes in our lives. Joseph had this attitude. But then, Jesus lived it to full perfection, didn't he? Even before all this evil happened to him, he was teaching his disciples. He was prepared for it. And he was wanting them to be prepared for it. Don't let this catch you by surprise. It's all going to happen. They kept, they kept hearing only, I will be crucified. They never heard after three days I will rise again. Selective hearing. But Jesus was well prepared because he, embodiment of God in flesh, understood. And we're going to see that in his encounter with Pilate how he submitted himself. It's, it's that Jesus stood tall by his silence, by his refusal to retaliate, by his refusal to retaliate. He was encouraging them, don't lose heart. God is working out all these purposes for the saving of your souls. It's this truth that sustained the apostles later on as they endured suffering upon suffering, rejection upon rejection. One apostle comes to mind, the familiar one, the apostle Paul. We're going to get two passages. It's a three in total. One is Genesis, two from the writings of the apostle Paul before we close. Passage number one that I want you to see is Second Corinthians chapter 4, page 1647. Second Corinthians chapter 4, page verses 16 through 18 we're going to read. Paul is listing a lot of the sufferings that he went through uh, earlier in verses 8 through 10. It's a long litany of sufferings. Then later again in chapter 6, he will list all the sufferings. But then, he could still say these things in verse 16, notice. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because he knows God will raise us and through our suffering, others are getting saved and thanksgiving is going to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. 
yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day and then notice pay close attention to how this this is a very powerful text here it says for how do we know paul that we're not wasting away we're being inwardly renewed for because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all pay close attention here the two terms i want you to notice first of all light momentary that's how he's defining his troubles but then we might ask him paul how can you say sufferings are light how can you say this is momentary this is brutal on you you know what paul would say yes it is i'm not denying that but it's light and momentary when it's seen in the light of this what is that eternal glory that far outweighs them all you see the troubles he can call it momentary because the future glory is eternal he is looking at today's troubles in the light of tomorrow's glory tomorrow's glory is forever in the light of forever everything is very momentary and the glory that word doxa has the idea of weight heaviness the old testament it would refer to kabod a word that refers to heaviness meaning that god's glory is weighty so that's why he says these trials are light compared to that glory that awaits us so when he says light and momentary what he is doing is this he is bringing eternity and viewing the temporary through the eternity that's what he is doing that's why he says in verse 18 so we fix our eyes not on what is seen because what is seen is this trouble after trouble after trouble but what but what we see is on the unseen since what is seen is temporary what is unseen is eternal throughout these verses what is he is contrasting today and tomorrow the eternity and because of that he is able to say in verse 16 we do not lose heart we don't give up and give in to evil by turning our backs on jesus that's why it's this perspective that god will one day bring me to glory what does that mean will be made like christ when jesus returns we have this new body no more pain no more sorrow no more affliction that's eternal that's the glory that awaits us that glory far outweighs all the troubles of all humanity put together he's not denying his suffering that's why he gave a list but he says i've learned to endure that in the light of that again he could see the sovereign hand of god god you started a good work in me you will complete it and in the process of bringing that good work to completion that goes through this narrow path which involves rejection and suffering and evil upon evil at times second passage where he stresses the very familiar romans 8 two books to your left romans chapter 8 page 1610 we're going to read verses 28 through 30 romans 8 Notice in verse twenty-eight, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Notice how Paul says that in all things God works for the good. If you're following in ESV, it's probably better you look at the alternative rendering in the footnote because that brings it better. It's God working. The NASB has it as God causes all things to work together, because what Paul wants us to see really is God being the agent. 
who's working all these things together. That's why the NIV here says, this, in all things, God works for the good. But notice that phrase, all things, that includes both good and evil. Not just the good things. What Paul is affirming to us again is, a sovereign and an all-wise and an all-loving God uses even those evil things that are happening to you to accomplish the good. What is the good? What, because it says, the good. It's a specific good that he has in mind. People usually take this text out of context and say, oh, you lost a job? Don't worry. All things work together for the good. You'll get a better job. That's not what this is talking about. God provides. The good here is explained in verse 29 and verse 30. Look at verse 29. Again, notice the word it starts with, for. So you know that means it connects to the previous verse. For those God foreknew, He also predestined for what purpose? What did, why did God choose eternity past? For what purpose? People, for salvation. To be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good He's talking about. Our glorification. We will be made like Christ. So in all these events, both the good and the bad, God mixes it all together. It's like a food item. If you just take a spoon of salt and eat, you cannot. If you take a piece of tomato that's going in, that's different. But when you put it all together, comes out the final product. You're thinking about lunch. You'll soon get it. Bear with me. That's what Paul is telling. God is weaving all these things. The good things that happen in your life and the bad things. The disappointments, the sorrows, the frustrations, weaving all things together to bring about that final ultimate dish. And what is that? You being made like Christ, being conformed to the image of His Son. The glorification. He's using all that. Then look at the very next verse. Verse 30. As Paul describes what is called as a golden chain of events that God accomplishes in the lives of those who love Him. It's not for everyone, only those who love Him, those who are His children. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Predestination was eternity past. The calling happened at some point of time in your life if you're sitting here as a Christian. And at that moment when He called you, granted you repentance and faith, He also justified you, meaning He made you right in His sight. But then notice that last phrase. Everything so far is in the past tense. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. I look at you, you look at me. I don't see us being any close to being glorified. But yet it is in the past tense. All translations agree on this. Because the language is in the past tense. What does it mean? God who stands outside of time, looks at those in whose life He started the work, He sees it as a completed thing. God sees us as glorified because of our union in Christ. It's like a puzzle. You, you get a puzzle box, parents can, you know how it all fits together. Sometimes kids don't know. So you let them figure it out. It's not like God is telling, you know, I'm leaving you alone, just fumble and somehow you'll get there. No, I want you to trust me. I'm weaving all these things together in your life. And yes, that includes a lot of tears, a lot of heartaches. But don't give up. Because you're closer this Lord's Day than last Lord's Day to that event called glorification. 
That's what our sovereign God does. He took this money that was for the betrayal of his holy son and even through that weaved his purposes. So everything was moving according to plan. We don't need to panic when things don't go our way. We don't need to panic when people insult us over and over and over that cold rejection, that distancing or that verbal abuse, whatever it is. We can say, God, I know you're in sovereign control. Would you please grant them repentance? Would you please change me to become more like your son? Because when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When they abused him, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. First Peter 2 verse 23. And Peter says in verse 21 of that same chapter, he did that as an example for us. Only twice in the scriptures, he did this as an example appears. One in John 13, I think it's verse 18 or 17, I'm not sure. Jesus says, as foot washing, I've done this as an example. That's a picture of humble service. And for Peter 2, verse 21, example is for patience in suffering, enduring suffering. Serving suffering. We do it the way Jesus did it. That's the biblical call. Listen, Jesus has already won the victory for us. It's only a matter of time before we experience the fullness of that victory. So we can be comforted and press on with renewed zeal knowing we will face both good and bad things in the days to come. But when those bad things come, let us not be shocked, but let us continue to cast ourselves at the feet of a loving and a sovereign and a merciful God and say, God, even though it is hard, even though I don't understand, but I believe you're working even this as a means to bring me to that point of making me like your son. I don't need to fall into despair or discouragement. I don't need to choose to retaliate, but rather choose to be kind and continue to do good even to those who hurt me. And God, I don't ever want to judge you wrongly or have a warped view of who you really are. Power belongs to you and to you is unfailing love. He is able and he is willing to carry us through all the storms of life. If you've never put your faith in Christ, come to this Christ. Where else can you find a God like him? Come as you are. From where you are. Jesus, save me. That's enough. Jesus, save me. He'll work in your heart repentance. He'll work in your heart that faith to trust in Him. Come as you are. He won't leave you where you are. And for those of us in whose life He's called us to that, let's believe He also glorified will happen. We can press on. We can give ourselves even more freely. We can become even more vulnerable so that others could be blessed through our character. Father, these are supernatural things that only your supernatural spirit living inside of us can accomplish. Would you please do that in all of the hearts that are present here today? For Jesus' sake and for his glory we pray. Amen.